I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours, mentally yours. Hello and welcome back to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's mental health podcast. I'm Rachel, Metro's Lifestyle Editor, and on today's episode, I'm very excited to have Natasha Devon with me to talk about how to be your best self online and the impact of trolling on mental health. Natasha is a fabulous person to talk about this. She's a writer, a presenter, and an activist who delivers talks and conducts research on mental health. Her latest book, Clicks, How to Be Your Best Self Online, is out there now for those of you who want to buy it. But before that, we've been hearing from you. As always, you've been getting in touch to tell me what you've been doing to support your mental health this week. The way I support my mental health is going to regular Zumba classes. If I've had a bad day and I go to Zumba, I always feel happier and I absolutely love to dance. The music is amazing and you'll feel incredible after. I recommend everyone should give it a go. The way I've been working on my mental health this week has been to really embrace having firm boundaries with things. Um, And the way that's shown itself this week has been saying no to things at work that I know I don't need to say um, yes to. So for instance, going home on time and expressing that I'm happy to do additional hours, but with advance notice and not on the day and prioritizing getting back to family thank you so much for sending those in um it has inspired me to get off my bum and get moving this week um if you've listened to a couple of these podcasts since i've joined you've probably already gathered that dancing is very important to me i like to get up and move because it makes me feel good in a nutshell. I've skipped a couple of classes in the last couple of weeks because life got on top of me, but this week was a real reset. I've been back shaking my bum and uh, making my brain feel very healthy. So I would highly recommend that. 
So Natasha, our paths have crossed um, a few times in the past, but for listeners who don't know you, can we just kick off by you telling us a little bit about you and the work you do around mental health? So most of my work is in schools and colleges, mainly here in the UK, but sometimes I get invited throughout the world as well. And I do focus groups with 14 to 18 year olds, and I ask them to reflect on their personal health and social education and what was missing and what they would have liked more information on and in what format. And then based on the feedback that they give me, I work with a team of experts in neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry to come up with lesson plans, which I then take back into schools. So that's my sort of day job. And then I would say on the periphery of that, I also do some political campaigning. I certainly try and make the world a little bit fairer for young people. And I also have a a weekly radio show on LBC on Saturday evenings. You're a very busy lady. Very, very busy. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of all that, you've got a new book out. Um, Can you tell us a bit about Clicks and also why did you want to write it? Well, Clicks, the idea for it actually came out of the focus groups with teenagers because they were saying that they felt that their social media education had been far too draconian. And the message that they were getting from the adults around them was, look, just don't go on social media because you'll definitely, you'll be groomed, you'll be radicalized, you'll send a naked selfie, and then your future employer will see it and you'll never get a job and you'll die in a ditch. And um, it kind of reminded me of the sex education that I'd had at school in the 90s where they kind of went, well, the only way to avoid pregnancy or an STI is to abstain the end. And we kind of went, okay, but you know, some of us are going to have sex. So what's the safest way to do that? So it was that approach really of getting into the weeds of it, really navigating the online world and keeping yourself emotionally as well as physically safe. Mm, Yeah, I love that. And is the idea that kids will read it by themselves, that they'll read it in schools, or is it more for parents? Who are you hoping is going to pick it up? That's an interesting question. I I wrote it with 13 to 16 year olds in mind, but so many parents have said to me that they found it really useful. And I think it's for people who are my age. So I'm in my early forties. The technical revolution happened during our lifetimes and at an age where we were still young enough to be quite excited by that and to embrace it. And I think a, a lot of parents are quite social media addicted themselves, but also trying to navigate their children through it at the same time. And it's a strange parallel position to be in. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I completely agree. I think even though your book is aimed towards teenagers, young adults, there's so much in there that maybe us older adults might not like to admit, but that we really need to learn. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're still getting it wrong or there are a lot of challenges in this space. A lot of the book is about how we show up as our best selves online. So for adults, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, I talk about the fact that when we join social media, we create what is effectively an avatar of ourselves. And we, whether consciously or unconsciously, we Photoshop out anything that we don't like about ourselves and not just physically, but anything about our character that we are perhaps slightly embarrassed about, or we think of as an imperfection, we will not tend to show. And so we've created this kind of online representative 
who is out on the internet getting all this validation and positive feedback. But we know that that's not us. So it never truly nourishes us in the way that we need it to. And I think that that creates quite an interesting kind of psychological schism where the criticism that we experience online really hits home, but the praise never truly does. You can end up in this kind of cycle of seeking more and more validation, but it never truly hits the spot. Yeah. And there's some research I know that you've looked into about what all this is doing to our brains, because it has like a very real impact, doesn't it? Like no matter what age you are. Yeah. I mean, there's two elements really, I think, to it. First of all, how addictive technology is. So when I spoke about that, I've talked a lot about the the principles of addiction psychology. And one of which, for example, is creating space between urgent action. So if you, you can create an opportunity or an alert to get your conscious brain involved in your relationship with technology and kind of set boundaries for yourself, then you learn to self-regulate around it because your, your phone or your tablet or whatever will want you to check it or be on it for as long as possible because that's how the, the apps make money. Um, so that's one kind of psychological element. But then the other, I think, is the self-esteem part of the conversation where not only are we competing in this kind of terrifying global hierarchy, but also we're competing against an idealized version of ourselves. That we can never live up to our own avatars almost. Yeah, exactly. It's who we wished we were and we could never be as well because it's not a realistic person. Yeah. What do you, what do you think that's doing to people's mental health? It's interesting. Think about it from a body image point of view, that if you regularly, for example, digitally alter your your photos and selfies that you're putting online, and then you look in the mirror, so you have this idea, and the average person checks their phone, I discovered, between 87 and 203 times a day. So that's how often you are likely to be seeing images of yourself or what you think you look like. And then you catch your reflection in a mirror or, you know, in the bus as it goes past or in a, in a shop window, and it's not going to measure up. If you take that and extrapolate it, that's what it's doing to us psychologically. It's, it's encouraging this kind of, these unrealistic expectations of who we are supposed to be. I wanted to get your take on like influencer culture as well and how that plays into it. Because I think for me, you know, growing up, it, that wasn't a thing. Um, it wasn't something I had to think about. We had the mags that, you know, for better or worse, they, they were escapism, but they didn't always make us feel great about ourselves, but at least, you put them down and that was it. And now influencer culture is so, you know, close, close by. It's at the touch of a finger and easy scroll. So is that playing into all of this? Do you think? I think we have to be quite careful of uh, talking about influencers as though they were, they are all the same. There are, there are different types of influencers who have a different type of content and message and following. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with clicks is not make it a doom and gloom book and to say, look, actually, there are positives to social media. It's about how you use it, not the fact of it. And it's interesting that you mentioned growing up with magazines because um, I reflected on my teenagers. So I grew up in a tiny village in Essex called Ugly. Um, <laughs> if you've heard of it, it's spelled U-G-L-E-Y, but it's pronounced ugly. And um, I grew up in a multiracial family in a very, very Caucasian area. It was sort of, I would say, 95% white, really tall for my age and a, a tall person that takes up space as well, not a stretched, modelly tall person. 
and also being bisexual uh, during the era of Section 28 when it, teachers weren't allowed to mention homosexuality in the classroom. So for all of those reasons, I felt like I was on the periphery of things and that I didn't really have a tribe and I wasn't really clicking with anyone. And then the only things that I had really that were even attempting to speak to me in my voice were those teen magazines, more magazine, things like that. And I, I always remember there was a there was an interview with a boy band in more magazine. I must have been about 14, 15 at the time. And the journalist for some reason asked this boy band is it or is it not sexy when a woman shaves her legs in the bath? And then this boy band men member responded and said, well, I don't know. I, I guess it depends on how hairy her legs were to begin with. And I think about that every time I shave my legs in the bath. That is a reflection of how few things they were talking to me in my language. So now I'm looking at TikTok videos in the context of all that. And I'm thinking, wow, these teenagers, they're talking about politics and philosophy and the environment and feminism and intersectionalism. And they're doing it in these really accessible, humorous, clever ways. And I had, is it or is it not sexy when a woman shaves her legs in the bath? So, so really they have an advantage over us that is rarely discussed, I think. Yeah, God, you're so right. What I've taken away from that is if I... I'm not gaining anything from these endless videos showing me unboxing of Zara outfits. I'm just following the wrong people because um, there is so much great stuff out there. You're completely right. It's a really good point. I wanted to talk to you um, about some of the darker sides of social media as well. And in particular, trolling. I know that um, in 2016, the BBC gave you the uh, lovely title of one of the most prolifically trolled people in the UK. I can only imagine how that might have felt reading that. Um, are you comfortable telling us a bit about the trolling you've experienced online and, and how that's felt? Yeah, I think like a lot of women who have experienced that level of trolling, it's because I came to the attention of or onto the radar of a particular group. And in my instance, it was the the followers of Milo Yiannopoulos, who was you know, a, a big Andrew Tate style, um, influencer at the time. And it resulted in just an absolute deluge of everything from, you know, unkind things about my appearance, right up to death threats and rape threats, and then everything in between. And that I think what it did for me is not necessarily helpful. It, it, it just gave me a really thick skin. And I just went, well, I, I, at one point I was laughing at it because I could see it was quite formulaic. They kind of go, they say, who are you? I've never heard of you. And then they say, you're ugly. And then they say, die. You know, if they don't get the attention they want, that's always the, the kind of formula that it follows. And I, I almost became detached from my emotional response to it. And it's only now, a few years later, that I can look back and acknowledge how terrifying that time was and how I was, you know, I was looking at people in the street thinking, was it you who sent those things? And would you actually do something? Would you, is this just words or would you take this into the, the real world? I was in this state of kind of hypervigilance all the time. Gosh, yeah. How do you even begin to cope with something like that? Like, was was there anything you put in place to help manage that anxiety of those very like real life 
kind of threats and that feeling of having a real life threat anyway? Um, there, there isn't really an awful lot you can do in those circumstances. And I didn't feel like I wanted to share how scared I was feeling with the people around me because I didn't want them to feel scared as well. But I did have that sort of slightly almost like a Superman feeling. I'm talking about Superman in the films of like, oh, everyone I love is now in danger because being associated with me now brings with it a risk. And um, it would have been very easy, I think, to isolate myself for the for the safety of the people that I cared about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've done loads of research over the years into various things to do with mental health. Do we know or is there research out there about why people troll? Like, do we know what makes someone post horrible things on the internet? There's some really interesting research that's come out of the Center for Countering Digital, Digital Hate um, about how trolling happens. And there's really two flavors of it. There is your kind of stereotypical person who just literally wants attention and because we have inbuilt negativity bias, so you can actually see this play out. If you look under any celebrity's Instagram posts, you will see a thousand messages going, slay, hot, flames, you're amazing. And then one will say, you've lost too much weight. And that's the one that the celebrity will respond to because of our inbuilt negativity bias. We notice negative things disproportionately. So they know that's a surefire way to get some kind of interaction. So there's that flavor of trolling, but then there's also, it, it's how people build a following. So, so what they do is they say, I'm a, a far right troll. I will target a high profile liberal person in the hope that they will share and go, look at how awful this thing is that I have to put up with. And they may have a following of millions. 99% of whom will agree with them and say, that's awful. 1% might go, actually, I feel like that person might have a point and hop over to their account. So they're actually building traction through targeting and trying to get a rea reaction from liberal commentators. So the, um, the advice of the, from the Center for Countering Digital Hate is just don't engage because you're giving them what, what they want. Gosh, that's really interesting to know. And yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. You mentioned um, celebs or high profile people are very much targeted. We also know that certain groups of people are targeted more than others for trolling. Um, and I just wanted to say you've been an amazing advocate for the trans community online. I've seen some of the things you've posted and they're just brilliant and can't praise you enough for that. For people listening who want to be better allies, have you got an advice for being an ally online or how do we practice allyship while also feeling safe ourselves? I'm actually an ambassador for a charity called Glitch. And one of their missions is to advocate for marginalized voices online. Trans people are one example. Women of color are disproportionately targeted as well. And what they're saying is that people are always talking about freedom of speech, but we also have a right not to be harassed. And in a civilized society, those two things have to live side by side. And what's happening right now is in the name of freedom of speech, marginalized voices are being bullied out of the conversation. And you have people like Elon Musk talking about social media as this global marketplace where we all share ideas. And yet some voices are simply not being heard. Um, so I would say if you want to be an ally, there are two things that you can do. Um, one is to 
listen with the intent to understand. Um, really, you hear all these really unhelpful things when people explain what it's like to be constantly targeted online. People say, well, you know, just, just come off social media for a few days then, or don't understand why this upsets you so much because they're not truly empathizing with what it's like to, to live through that. And then I would say you don't have to jump in and get involved in the conversation. Like, yeah, particularly the trans conversation has become so toxic. I know so many cis women who are trans allies who go, I would never speak about that online because I just know I'm going to be targeted forever. But what you can do is you can send a message to the person that's being targeted saying, I appreciate you. I see you. I think you deserve to have rights so that they know that the people they're being targeted by are not representative of everyone. Yeah. I love that. That's such good advice. And um, that's a really like lovely way of spreading a little bit of positivity, I think. And I wanted to chat about positivity because one of the things we often hear is that social media is a highlights reel. We just show our best selves, as you touched on earlier, you know, the image everyone wants to see. So how do you strike that balance between spreading positivity, but not going into toxic positivity? Um and, you know, that kind of realm. Have you got any tips around that? Yeah. So I, I think it, the difference is how we respond to other people versus how we show up ourselves. When it comes to our responses to other people, I think any criticism should always be constructive. So if we don't think that people have the capacity to listen or change, there really is no point in engaging. And I've never really understood that mentality. I've never seen someone on TV gone, I hate this person's opinions. I'm going to send them a message or I'm going to tweet them. Sometimes I will tweet about them and say, here's where you can find responsible um, information on what this person is talking about. But I've never tried to engage with them. That's an example of unnecessary negativity, I think. But toxic positivity is when you refuse to have any criticism leveled at you or anything that isn't, you know, people gassing you up essentially because you can't take it, but your excuse is, well, um, you know, this is a negativity free zone. And I've seen examples of this where people have be been behaving in problematic ways and they have refused to engage with the legitimate criticism of them. And I always think if someone if someone gets in touch to criticize you legitimately, it's actually a compliment because they think that you have the capacity to change. And that's something that's happened to me a couple of times. I have unwittingly um, in the past, for example, used ableist language. And I've, I've had disabled people say like, do you know the origins of this word? And, and I genuinely didn't. And I'm like, Re I'm really sorry. I won't use it again. You know, thank you for drawing that to my attention. But I've seen that as a compliment because they've always, they've obviously gone, oh, Natasha's good people. If I tell her this, she'll respond in a positive way. And they think that that's worth their time and their energy. Toxic positivity would be if I'd gone, hang on, no, you're, you're targeting me now. Like, you know, I'm not going to listen to this because I only have time for positivity, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Absolutely. Um, I guess it's about like being open to learning, just being an open person. And that's kind of the joy of the internet. You can, you can learn a lot from a lot of different people that you might not meet in everyday life. What has all this got to do with our mental health? So all of these tips, super, super useful. How do you think 
getting more, getting better equipped online will actually improve the nation's mental health? There was a report that came out from Ofcom in May that showed that social media literacy has a positive impact on mental health. And I think that's for all kinds of different reasons. Noticing, for example, or being aware of the impact that social media has on the way that you think, the opinions that you form, the connections that you form, being able to spot fake news, knowing when you're perhaps meandering into kind of radicalization territory. These all have a knock-on impact on mental health. Understanding how the technology works and being self-aware enough to acknowledge the impact that it's having on you is a really, really key part of this discussion. And I think it's one that has taken a while for people to really acknowledge because no one likes to think that they're manipulatable no, no one wants. No one wants to believe that that you know they they voted a certain way or they behaved in a certain way or they think a certain way because of algorithms. But technology is that powerful, so it's. I think it's time to face up to that. Yeah, completely. As you say, you don't like to think you're getting sucked in, but it can happen so easily. So, what are some of the warning signs that that's happening to you? What are some of the signs that you're not engaging in a healthy way anymore, or maybe you do need to have a bit of a reset? I think it's, I always describe it to young people as think of people's opinions like a maths problem. Sometimes you can see their workings, you just don't agree with their solution. And if that's the case, it's worth having a conversation with that person. So if you look at them, you go, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. You, you seem to have good motivations. You know, we have some things in common. I don't agree with your solution. That doesn't mean that that person is evil or problematic. I think when we start to dismiss anything that challenges our belief systems, that's a sign that that technology is shrinking our worldview. And I think even when we, we go, it's a bit of a strange opinion, if we kind of know that there are good motivations and that there is some sense behind it, we don't have to change our minds, but it is worth entering into dialogue with that person. And in the book, I describe it as stepping outside your slipstream. What, what social media does is it funnels you into a slipstream of people who have the same worldview as you. And that can end up polarizing you and making you very um, staunch in your worldview. Yeah, definitely. Um, you've given so many tips and there are many more in your book for anybody who would like to go and buy it. It is out now. Um, before we let you go, we do have one final question that we like to ask all of our podcast guests. And that is, what is the most important lesson that you've personally learned about your mental health that you'd like to share with the Mentally Yours listeners? So I really want to convey this in a way that doesn't sound smug or uh, reductionist, but some form of deliberate movement every day. I don't mean you have to go and pump iron in a gym every day, but just some form of deliberate movement is so helpful for me in managing anxiety. And the reason that was such a massive lesson for me to learn is because um, I, I have had panic attacks my entire life. And the main way that they manifest is in difficulty breathing. So when I was at school, I was that kid who would make any excuse to get out of doing PE because I didn't like being out of breath. It used to scare me and remind me of having a panic attack. All of that was undiagnosed at the time. I didn't know that was what was going on. I just thought I was 
bad at PE. Um, so there was a big portion of my life where I was incredibly sedentary and I had to relearn a, a love of movement and, and not living in my head. I spent decades of my life entirely living in my head, completely disconnected from my body, but reconnecting with my body and you know, I run, I do yoga, I do um, dance classes, and I'm not good at any of these things, <laughs> but they are incredibly helpful in, in managing anxiety. Agree. You are a woman after my own heart. I'm exactly the same where all those things are concerned. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Thank you again to Natasha for being our guest on Mentally Yours this week. If you've been affected by anything you've heard today, please call the Samaritans on 116 123. You can find us on our Facebook group, Mentally Yours, and on Twitter at MentallyYRS. And please get involved. Tell us what you've been doing this week to look after your mental health. You can message at Pineapple Audio Production on Instagram with your voice notes. Thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget to follow and review for more podcast episodes coming your way soon. Mentally Yours is produced by Pineapple Audio Production. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 